On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we now know, we think, what it will cost the city of Hamilton to operate the LRT. Does that answer all the questions? Does this mean it's going to go ahead or are there still questions? Lloyd Ferguson, Councillor Frankaster, joins us to talk about that. Cannabis uh, has been legal now in the country for a number of years, but there are new concerns because it seems that an awful lot of kids are using it, which is not ideal by any stretch. Uh, why should we be concerned? How concerned should we be about this? We'll talk about that. And Rick Zamperin joins us, host of the fifth quarter here on 900 CHML, to talk about the CFL schedule, specifically the Ticats schedule. Guess who they play four times this year? Yeah, you know. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, it seems, tomorrow is, by all accounts, uh, the meeting for the LRT. Now, as I said a moment ago, it could be delayed, I suppose, again, but it, it seems as though we've reached the the fulcrum here on the seesaw. We're going to tip one way or another tomorrow. And the reason that it's even tomorrow as opposed to two weeks ago is that we were waiting to find out from staff, from city staff, their best guess of how much it would cost the city and taxpayers to operate this. Provincial and federal governments are going to build it. They will own it. We will run it. So how much is that going to cost? Because there were quotes all over the place from something like five or six million dollars up to 39, I think at one point I saw 39 million. Well, we now are told by this city staff report that it could range anywhere from 6.4 million dollars a year up to 16.5 million, which is low. And and I think low relatively speaking from what we were expecting. And the 6.4 is based on a few things. All these are based on a few things, but based on 8% ridership growth from the current people using it along that route, and then a bunch of buses, 29 buses being decommissioned, I guess, taken off the LRT because we don't need them along that stretch anymore. Well, the man who requested this information so a better decision could be made is Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, who joins me now. Lloyd, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this. I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So when we see this report ahead of tomorrow's meeting, um, this was that this was the thing that was, it sounds like anyway, hanging you up a bit and a few other counselors on what is this going to cost? When you see this report and you see these numbers, are your questions satisfactorily answered? Yeah, they are. I, it, it, the only caveat to that is I have to wait and see what my if my um, a majority of my council colleagues agree with me and, and what, what I'd like to do. Because you're absolutely right. Uh, there's three things that uh, I hope to propose tomorrow. Um, right now, they would, uh, they're proposing on the scenario number one is to um, retire, I guess, 29 buses. And so there's the express buses that run from Eastgate Square through to McMaster University. And quite frankly, in my view, it would be silly to run an LRT and buses side by side down the same road. Uh, going to the same destinations. And I'm, I'm, I've hoped that uh, most people would prefer to ride on a train that will be faster and uh, more sexy. You know, it, we, I found that in my tour of Charlotte and Portland and Calgary that uh, everybody will ride an uh, LRT. They, they said they went to see the NFL team there in Charlotte that if they came by train, they bragged about it. If they came by bus, they didn't talk about it. But, <laughs> but the... Um, and, and so there's uh, 29 buses that come off, and that includes 30% of the buses that are currently on the uh, uh, King and Delaware lines. 
And I, I've seen some media reports that the only way we're going to pay for this is to cut transit, and that's not true. What you're doing is replacing them with a train. And, and so we're going to replace um, the B line, if you will, which is that express route. And 30% of the buses in the Delaware and the 30% that they're cutting are the ones that uh, that part of the route is on King Street. So once again, you'll be running parallel to to the train. And, of course, the train's going to take up a number of lanes on King, which is not going to be very popular, but it would be almost impossible for buses and garbage trucks and then the public to get down those restricted lanes if they're running buses through there anyway. So that brings the operating costs. The, the gross cost of uh, operation maintenance, according to Metrolinks, is $20 million. We've heard numbers all over the place on what it costs to operate it, but I, I think if I have to believe someone, I would believe Metrolinks because they're running a bunch of these trains now. So they should know operating costs per kilometer. And so they forecast a $20 million, which is just about in the middle of all the, the forecasts we got yeah, you know, if you're in favor of the train, it was $6 million. You're opposed to the train, it's $40 million. Where Metrolinx is coming in with actual hard data on the trains that they're running in other parts of the province right now. So that brings the operating cost from $20 million down to 6.5. And then there's two other areas I want to take a look at and address. One, one is that we offer a 40% discount on development charges, which is the fees paid by developers when they do a development to pay for hard services. You know, we're spending a lot of that D.C. money right now at their sewage treatment plant, something in the order of $400 million to um, expand that plant and and uh, and clean it up. And uh, that's a, a lot of that is paid for out of development charges. Whenever there's a major water main that has to be put in for future development, D.C.'s pay for it. Same with trunk sanitary sewers. And so why should they get a tax holiday when we're going to spend $3.4 billion of senior level of government's money to put right. a high-order transit system down King Street. They should be paying the same as everybody else does in the city. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lloyd, just before the break, one of the things you said was that one way we're going to keep the numbers or be able to maybe keep the cost down is by taking the buses out of service that we're running along that route. And I think everybody would agree with the idea that we don't need buses running alongside the LRT. That would be silly. But is it wise to take the buses that we have out of service entirely? Or since there's been so much discussion about how this is supposed to improve transit in this city, should we be taking those buses and deploying them to other routes in the city to try and improve transit elsewhere? Well, that's a whole different topic for a whole different day and a whole different debate. Because uh, HSR has been charged with the responsibility of reporting back to us on re-envisioning the HSR and changing the routes to, to be uh, faster, to be more convenient, but more important, to cover the areas where it's needed. And that will be coming up at a later date. Now, we're, we're not going to take these 29 buses and drive them off a cliff. We're not, uh, you know, so I, I don't know whether we'll sell them and then buy more if we decide to do enhanced transit. But we've been enhancing traffic significantly with a 10-year transit strategy. And we've had to put that on hold last year because of COVID-19, and I believe the year before for the same reason. We've gone through two years of putting a 10-year transit strategy on hold because of COVID and significantly declining ridership. But we'll see how much that comes back when we um, come out of this in the next few months, we hope, and and then wait for this re-envisioning program. So as, as far as improving transit, that's coming 
depending what the re-envisioning strategy says, because they're examining every route in the entire city. But the debate tomorrow is about um, operating costs for LRT. And you don't need the same buses running beside the LRT, as you of said. Course. It's ridiculous. And, and so this, the, uh, it drops the operating cost down to $6.4 million for LRT if you retire those buses. But uh, the reason, Lloyd, the reason I asked about that, because I understand that we have to do the buses separately, but if we're taking the money out of the LRT operating costs by dumping the buses, but then in September putting the buses back in service, are we really lowering the LRT operating cost then, or is it a false operating cost because we've eliminated those, say, 29 buses, but then they'll come right back into service? Well, I suspect the re-envisioning will have far less than 29 buses required. Don't know, haven't seen it, it's not ready yet. And, and we'll deal with that later as part of the 10-year transit strategy, which we do every year. But I, because there's buses running that current B-line route, the King Street route, you don't need those buses, and so you retire them. Now, what we do with them later, but the only reason we can retire them is because the LRT is coming. So, yeah, that should come off the operating cost of the LRT because it's being replaced by that unit. And then we can go, uh, look at our re-envisioned and, and uh, see where we may or may not need further buses to enhance transit even further. But I don't want to estimate to your listeners, underestimate your listeners, we've already increased transit significantly through the 10-year transit strategy. And, and uh, we're, not, we're still not up anywhere near the ridership that was forecasted in the, in the Rapid Ready program. And uh, it's getting better. But we actually went through a decline when we first started doing transit enhancements. So just because you throw buses on doesn't mean the ridership mm. will go up. But that's a whole different discussion for a whole different day. We just don't need these 29 buses if we've got a train running down King Street. You're, so right now, and I'm just pulling this up, the Spectator did a, a poll um, a, a few days ago asking councillors where they stood on the LRT going in. Now, at the time the question was asked, you did not have the figures that we're talking about right now. And there were six that were absolutely locked in as yes. There were, there were four, including you, that were listed as undecided, that were based on, let me see the numbers. You need eight because Terry Whitehead is not around the council table right now. He's on a leave. So you need eight for this thing to move ahead. Do you think that there are, including you, that there are two others that will jump to the yes category by tomorrow? It depends on whether or not the, the, the other yes people will support these savings that we're forecasting. Because I didn't finish the savings for you. We had to go to commercial. Mm. So it's, we start at $6.4 million after they've taken the 29 buses off. Then we subtract $8 million because the, the holiday on development charges for 40% should end. And they've got to support that tomorrow. And I don't think anybody will disagree with that. And for spending $3.4 billion to put an advanced form of transit in, we shouldn't have to offer incentives anymore. And we offer tax incentives also. And, and those uh, total another $1.5 million. It's a tax holiday for 10 years. It's a sliding scale. It's called the Hamilton Tax Increment Grant Program. So if you add all that up, the net cash to the city of Hamilton will actually improve by $3.1 million. So you start at 6.4, add the 8, add the 1.5, and we end up with a $3.1 million in additional income that the taxpayers will enjoy as a result of this. So if those three amendments carry tomorrow, I'll come on site. 
We will be I watching it. I can't speak for the other three, though, Scott, as you could expect. Well, it's going to be, I, I mean, I suspect it may be close, and it's going to be really interesting uh, tomorrow morning to see how this thing breaks down. But we will uh, we will have our eyes on it for sure. That is Lloyd Ferguson. Uh, really appreciate the time, as we always do. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Okay, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So a few years ago, when cannabis was legalized in Canada, there were a lot of people who were happy about that. And I'm betting that many of those who were happy about it remain happy about it, that they think it is a better system that we have now. However, one of the concerns, one of the concerns that was raised was that when you make something legal, you may make it easier to get your hands on it. And that's maybe not a problem for you if you're an adult, but we're talking about younger people. That the concern was, does accessibility make it easier for kids to get their hands on the drug? Well, that was a concern. Turns out, it seems, some of those fears may have merit because there's some new research that show that kids as young as 12 in this country are using cannabis often, and many high schoolers are vaping cannabis daily, daily, many of them. One survey has found that 10% of kids in grade eight have vaped marijuana in the past year. You go up to almost 25% among those in grade 12. And that's not even talking about the ones who are doing it day after day after day. James McKillop, Dr. James McKillop is the Peter Boris Chair in Addictions Research at McMaster, the director of the Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research, the co-director of the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience, he joins us now. Dr. McKill, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Scott. So when we hear that this has become a thing, that we're not talking about adults using it, but that it's become a thing and a bit of a concern with kids using and getting their hands on cannabis now e- more easily because it's legalized, is that surprising to you or is that what you would have expected? It's it's not surprising. Uh, it, it, it is frankly disappointing to hear because I think one of the major reasons for legalization was the idea that a regulated market could keep cannabis out of the hands of uh, children and teenagers more effectively. Um, It suggests that that hasn't happened and it's very troubling. Do you think, and now you're not a criminal guy, I'm not, you're, you're not a lawyer, you're not a police officer, you're not in that field, but do you think just from anecdotally, are we doing anything to stop that from happening? Are we doing enough to stop that from happening? I think if the data are to be believed, and I don't have any good reason not to believe them, it suggests that we're not doing enough. And I think that um, obviously this has been a turbulent time in the world. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted so many aspects of society, but we are hearing on a number of different fronts that there are increases in cannabis use, use, and particularly in young people. And I think it does suggest that there needs to be a more aggressive strategy for uh, keeping these products out of the hands of kids and um, preventing the onset of cannabis use. Let me throw a really bad example at you. I'm not going to ask you for any uh, uh, any any comments here from your own experience. But when I was growing up, there were some friends of mine whose dads had in their house some magazines, some Playboy magazines, let's say, or something like that. And, you know, those kids could not go to the corner store and buy them. But because it was in the house and because dad had brought them home, somehow they always found those magazines. 
some people listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm wondering if it's the same kind of thing that even though kids can't go into the stores to buy them, if you're going to have it in the house, it's inevitable that kids are going to get their hands on it, just like they do with booze. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right, Scott. I think that there is an element of sort of trickle-down vice here insofar as, you know, when you have regulated markets for all sorts of things, like alcohol or or like pornography, the the more widespread the use is, ultimately the, the more access kids tend to have unless there are, you know, careful safeguards. Um, that, that being said, you know, I'm, I'm not a Puritan and I'm not anti-cannabis or anti-legal cannabis. I, I think that really it's a matter of making sure that the most vulnerable populations are not having access or, or overusing these products. And, and, you know, kids and teenagers definitely fall into that category of high vulnerability, high risk. Well, right. And and I like, look, we can have the discussion all day and we have you and I and others on this show about whether, you know, adults should, can do use it, whatever we know it's, yeah. they can make their decision. They're adults and, you know, so be it. Um, the discussion here and the concern is that it's whether it's healthy and appropriate for kids and they seem to be able to get their hands on it. Well, and I think that the, the, the reason I'm concerned is that uh, really twofold. The first is that what we know is that earlier onset of use is a negative predictor of uh, subsequent use in the sense that it predicts a more problematic trajectory. And for a lot of things, it's not just cannabis, but it's for alcohol and other drugs too. In many ways, the longer you can delay any exposure, the more basically you know healthy adolescence you get in which kids develop good psychosocial activities, hobbies, friend networks, academic accomplishments before they have substance use involvement, the better the prognosis overall in terms of not developing um, problems over the lifespan. So I'm, I'm troubled to hear that it's happening so young because that's not, that, that's a bad predictive variable. And the other reason I'm concerned is that in general, the products that are available now are much stronger than the ones that used to be available. So you go back 20 years, you know, way before legalization happened, the average strength of illegal cannabis was, was pretty weak. It was, you know, 5%, for example. Whereas most products today, the dried flower cannabis and the, the vaping products, are going to be in the, you know, 12, 15, 18, 20%. And so, the fact that it's happening and people are and young people are consuming these high potency products is even more concerning for me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things I didn't realize this, uh, clearly I'm not an expert in this, Dr. McKillop, but um, uh, vaping is the method of choice for many kids now, apparently. And this report says this is popular because vaping gives you a more of a high. Is that true? Well, it all comes down to how much THC is in the product. So it's not 100% true, but it is the case that for vaping, uh, you don't necessarily have the constraints that are associated with the plant product. So, you know, plants essentially can only manufacture so much THC, but the the products that go into vapes can essentially manufacture. And especially things like extracts or what are called concentrates, these are very, very highly concentrated products that are the equivalent of grain alcohol when it comes to cannabis. They can have 
very high levels of THC. And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I, I emphasize is how different the landscape is in terms of the different cannabis products that are out there now. So it is true that certainly some of the vaping products can be a lot stronger than traditional dried flower cannabis. Well, and this seems to be a recipe for some challenges because vaping seems like it's more, I mean, it would, you would think, I, I think if you're not an expert, you would think vaping sounds more benign and it comes with flavors and it's, it's in a little package that looks not as ominous or, you know, rough or whatever as a cigarette is or a joint. I mean, it seems like it's the perfect thing for kids. It doesn't look nearly as, as whatever as a joint might be. That's right. I mean, I think that there, there is something that is, um, you know, I, I think people recognize that joints do not seem like a healthy way to consume drugs. You know, inhaling, um, you know, combusted smoke from any product, cannabis or tobacco or anything else, irritates the lungs. In the case of cannabis, it can lead to chronic bronchitis. Certainly, my colleagues in respirology at St. Joe's are investigating lung harms associated with cannabis use. And so on, on one front, vaping is probably better uh, from a health standpoint in terms of lung health relative to inhaling cannabis smoke from, from a joint or a bong, for example. That being said, I think you're exactly right that in some ways uh, it, it is more insidious because the, the, the actual product itself can be stronger, it can seem more benign, it can seem more sanitized in some ways. And so I think that... Um, there, there is really a double-edged sword when it comes to uh, vaporized products, for sure. Do you think this is a fad? It's new. So, uh, you know, I, I always wonder if something is new and for years kids have been told, adults have been told, you know, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. But now it's okay. Do you think we're just in the middle of a blip here that every all, you know, kids are doing it because they can and that in time they're going to go back to normal behavior? Or do you think this is more long-lasting? You know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I tend to think that we are in the midst of what will be a, a generational shift in terms of practices. I, I think that um, there won't be a recalibration towards what were the kind of standard, you know, mores and practices prior to, to legalization. I think that there, it, this may be something of a blip, but we're still in some ways in the early days of legalization. I think that there there will be some long-standing trends that, that emerge. And I think that vaping in particular, and, you know, for that matter, edibles and drinkables and the many other products that are now much more widely available than they ever were before, I think they're going to become um, very mainstream. I, I, don't, I don't see any reason to think that, um, you know, demand will diminish and that, that this is just a fad. Um, that being said, in some ways, this, this may not be all for the bad. I just think that we have to recognize that the, the landscape is changing, and there's a, there's a tremendous need for research at a national level, at a provincial level, even at a local level, to understand how these things are changing. You mentioned the research. We only have a minute left here. It's a, it's a really difficult question because... Again, we're talking about kids with this for anyone who's just joining us. You know, if you're an adult, it's your choice, but we're talking about the kids with this. Can you do, we know that doctors and people like yourself have said cannabis use is not good for younger kids. I think it's under 25. Your brain is still developing. It's not good for that. But can you actually do research 
about this on kids or does that sort of fly into the medical ethics area because you would be doing research which would harm the subject of the research so you have to do it from a distance great question yeah it, it would be ethically problematical to do controlled research on cannabis consumption in you know kids or teenagers what we can do is what become essentially natural experiments by studying behaviors that are happening in observational studies that track people over time. And you can't randomly assign people to being a heavy cannabis user or a light cannabis user, but you can study their behaviors over time. And although it, it's obviously less rigorous than uh, you know, experimental assignment, you can map out some of the different uh, patterns and, and what are really problematical risk patterns. I think that as we go forward, there's going to be a real need to keep a very close eye on especially those young kids, eighth graders, ninth graders, tenth graders, where we really want to have the rates of cannabis use be as low as possible, because that's where the risks are probably the, the, the highest in terms of uh, subsequent negative outcomes. It is. Uh, it's a. It's an interesting topic for sure, and and it's. Uh, I mean, I think troubling is not too strong a word, especially with young kids. I mean, once again, the numbers almost ten percent of grade eight kids have vaped in the past year. I I don't know what people were doing in grade eight when I was that age, but I didn't think ten percent of them were 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 smoking. Yeah. Maybe maybe I was the only one who wasn't. I don't know, but uh, it didn't seem like it was that high. You and me both, Scott. That is uh, that is James, Dr. James McKillop. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing something tonight. Great to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend, just got off the air, our good friend Rick Zamperin, who does everything at CHML, including, and I mention this now because I can once again say this because it is once again relevant, host of the fifth quarter after Ticat Games. Sir, how are you? I am tremendous. Maybe not as tremendous as the Tiger Cats, and more importantly, the front office of the Tiger Cats, and their fans. <clears throat> but nonetheless, top shelf. Do you remember how to do the fifth quarter? You know what? I was thinking earlier today, like, how, how do I begin <laughs> again? How long is the show? <laughs> no, I'm, I am raring to go. I, you know, looking at the schedule, you know, the last couple of days have really been, you know, two of the highest points for the Canadian Football League over the last, well, 15 months or however long it's been. Um, I'm jacked to do it. I know fans are already... You know, sending me messages saying they can't wait. So, uh, circle August fifth on your calendar. We'll be doing the fifth quarter after the Tie Cats Bombers Grey Cup rematch. Yes. Well, the uh, so the schedule came out today, and the schedule is. I mean, I know you've written that you think this may be their best schedule in recent memory. Uh, why do you think that? There's a couple of things. Number one, and and maybe most importantly, is. There's a stretch of games where the Tiger Cats play uh, where they don't leave Ontario for a month and a half. So from Labor Day, which is their first home game against the Argos on September 6th, until October the 23rd, they're in Hamilton, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, Hamilton, Hamilton, Hamilton. Um, that, that is in the thick of the season. They're playing some big teams, or at least the teams that they should beat in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. Um, so that's reason number one. That long, that's seven games in a row. Half the season, they're not they're not traveling anywhere virtually. You know, they go to Ottawa, they'll they'll take the train. Uh, they go to Montreal, they'll take the train. Even earlier in the season. Uh, point number two to that is 
the the lack of travel. They're not going to Vancouver this year, so there's a six-hour flight and a time change that we always talk about how difficult it is to play against the BC Lions at BC Play Stadium. And they don't have to travel to Calgary. And Calgary's always a tough place to play. Uh, I know they beat them the last time around at McMahon Stadium, but still the Stamps are, are super tough at home no matter who they're playing. <clears throat> and I think point number three, maybe this might be the most important one, is that their first three games are on the road. And we all kind of knew that was going to be the case for a lot of the Eastern teams. But come Labor Day, and we're talking about you know three months from now almost, <clears throat> can there be even more fans than we expect at this time at Tim Hortons Field? It might be, might not be, but that might be an advantage for the Titans. Well, and once they start that string of home games um, on Labor Day, now we don't know yet. We don't know how this is all going to play out. And of course, you know, the teams can play better than they necessarily look on paper. But mm-hmm. my goodness, does it ever look like they've got a soft schedule in the middle of the season there? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and we don't know because we're looking at these teams and you can look at the Argos and say, you know, they should be a much better team. They've added so many more weapons veteran guys, Grey Cup champions to their roster that they should be better, but we just don't know. Um, can, can we say the Ticats are going to be you know, a team very comparable to their 15-win season from a couple of years ago? Obviously, they're not going to win 15 games because the schedule is only 14 games, but are they going to be as dominant? Is that win-loss spread going to be as uh, you know, huge as it was just two years ago? We don't know. A lot of the same guys are coming back, but it's a, an entirely new year. Two years basically have gone by. So, you know, when you look at their schedule, especially post Labor Day, I know they're hosting Calgary, and that's going to be a tough game, you know, in early September. And the road games are always, you know, kind of tough. But, you know, this Ticats team on paper looks good, should be in contention for a championship. Um, and that middle part of the schedule, those seven straight games in which they don't leave Ontario, I think it's going to be the make or break. Uh, for this for this team. What do you think of the idea here? And th- this is the thing that stood out to me immediately when you look at the schedule. They play the Argos four times this year, which I was surprised by because they. I thought, you know, if you're going to play the East, uh, an East rival four times, maybe it's three times and you play the Alouettes three times and the Red Blacks three times, but no, it's the Argos four times. And on the one hand, you say, that's fantastic. Everyone likes, everyone loves it when they play the Argos. The other side though, Rick is it sounds a little bit like the North division in the NHL that we just went <laughs> through. And after a while people were saying, okay, I, I get it. I get it. Enough of that. Which way is it going to be for you? No amount is too much or maybe one game more than I wanted. You know what, to be honest, I, you know, if, if it was Hamilton versus Toronto for 14 straight weeks, <laughs> I don't really want to do that. <laughs> But I'd be okay with it. I mean, it, you know, this is the rivalry of all rivalries in the CFL, but obviously that can't be done. But I was that was one of the surprising elements, if there was one, apart from, you know, not, not facing every team, was that, yeah, they face Toronto four times. They only play Ottawa twice, um, and they only play Montreal twice. So I, I thought maybe one of those Argos games would have been against Montreal or Ottawa, just to kind of even it out a bit. But if you're an Argonauts fan, if you're a Tiger Cats fan, you're looking at those four games to say, yeah, bring it on. We we want more of that. So I think that uh, that might be beneficial to both teams. The Ticats might think of the Argos as not an easy two points or an easy W, but you know, a team that they could take advantage of is certain certainly in the in the first part of the season because there's so many new pieces to Toronto, they might take some time to gel. So come, you know, week five or week six, whatever it is, of their rematch in Toronto after the Labor Day Classic, 
the Ticats could be rolling at that time. I don't know where we are with this next thing. Uh, I've heard chatter about it. I don't know if there's anything to it. I don't know if it's still up in the air because we got to make sure we get the 14 games in that are planned. But there have been some rumblings about the idea of eight of the nine teams making the playoffs this yeah. year. Um, is it me or would that be the absolute height of lunacy? To I mean, There's already only nine teams. Choosing only one not to make it would seem like the regular season would be meaningless. Yeah, there's only one other plan that would be absolutely worse, and that is all nine teams make it, and the first place team gets a buy, gets a buy in round one. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, of eight out of nine teams making it. I think you have to make the regular season uh, hold some value. Um, otherwise, especially early on in the season, fans are going to say, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe catch – uh, the game starting in October because the season doesn't really mean anything. I think, and I think Commissioner Randy Ambrosi has mentioned this as well. He'd like to see, you know, the the current six playoff team format uh, be adopted this year. I think that's the way to go. I think a you you bring a lot more value to the regular season. Uh, you uh, incentivize those teams to say, hey, we're not going to be, you know, four and ten and still make the playoffs. I mean, you got to go for it. This is. You know, the, the, the CFL regular season uh, in an 18-game format is a marathon. And we all know, you know, the season doesn't officially start, air quotes, on, uh, until Labor Day. But the fact of the matter is, you know, this is 14 games. This is four less games, no preseason games. Um, guys are coming in. They're quarantining. It's going to be a whole new feel. I think you have to say, listen, you've got to be among the top six to make it. Otherwise, you don't. That That, that would be the side of the equation that I'm standing on. I have long argued, I, I am not a traditionalist when it comes to CFL playoffs, and I have long argued that I think that the East and West thing can go. We live in a small country now when you consider internet and everything else. I would love, I've long wanted to see just the top six teams get in. I don't care what division they come from and in the order that they finish. I know they don't like to do that because they want to have an East versus West Grey Cup. But I would, I thought this was the year you could have said that. We only have 14 games, so the top six teams, no matter where they come from, they're getting in. Yeah, and I don't mind that. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, the, uh, at least I haven't heard, uh, is that whether the crossover is going to be a thing or not this year. If they're going top six, yeah, you can do the crossover for sure, and you know, only the top two teams in one division get in and four in the other division get in. I think you 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 are more than likely going to have the top six teams in that kind of format, but we have seen you know some years the first place team in the East being you know a pretty good team, and then the next five in the West you know outranking the other three teams mm-hmm. in the East. So I, I don't think they're going to do a single division format. I think they're going to. Keep I know the they're not. Rest. Yeah, they, yeah, they're I know they're not. And part of what you're saying is part of what I'm suggesting is the the first place team in the East is always going to be fine. But it always seems to me weird that if you win the crossover, and we've seen the crossover a bunch in recent years, and you're the crossover team and you have a better record than the team in the East, that you now have to go on the road and play them. That always seems odd to me. Just yeah. put it in the order. One one and two get a bye the first week. Two plays six, three plays five, and you make it count for something. But again, they're clearly not listening to my, my suggestion <laughs> on the playoffs. Um now, the other thing is, if they were to let eight teams in 
to the playoffs. Here's the thing, Rick, you and I both know Murphy's law guaranteed would come into play guaranteed because this is how it works around here. If you're a leaf fan, if you're a Ticat fan, if you're a fan of a team in Southern Ontario guaranteed, if they let eight teams into the playoffs, that means no team gets a buy. So the Ticats would have to, even if they finish first would have to play that opening weekend playoff game. And yeah. you know, because of Murphy's law that whoever was their starting quarterback at that time would suffer a season ending <laughs> injury in that game. And they would have two or three other significant injuries in that game. And that would cost them their chance. Cause that's how Murphy's law works with these guys it's with us in so this many, area. It, it's happened so many times. I think they've renamed the Ticats law because it just seems to happen, you know, at, at the worst times in the worst possible years when the team is, you know, on the cusp of greatness you know, even last last year or two years ago, Jeremiah Masoli goes down, and we're thinking, oh geez, you know, is, is Dane Evans going to get the job done? And uh, obviously he did, and they were an amazing team. But you know, there's been so many instances where this team is humming along, and then something happens. So if it is top eight, I don't know. Maybe you still give the first place teams a buy, and four plays three, and the winner of that plays number two, like they did in the NBA playing round i think you're getting a little too late in the year you know the last game of the regular season is you know late november Grey cups december 12th i think you're now you're asking teams to play a couple of games in a short amount of time i say go with top six keep the crossover uh and let's roll before i let you go i got to switch for one uh, second we watched last night or many people watched some people watch i don't know how many around here but uh, the uh, opening game of the Montreal Canadiens and Vegas Golden Knights. Mm. Um, this is the this is the matchup. The Leafs, would the Leafs have had no. The Leafs would not have ve- have had Vegas no, right because they, they finished. Have, they would have had Tampa. They, yeah, you, you know, I'm watching this and I'm thinking if you're a Leaf fan at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, even if they had managed to make it through, it would have just prolonged the agony. <laughs> because it looks like it looks like Montreal that came out of the north doesn't even look like it's an NHL team compared to Vegas. I will say this: the Habs had a good first five to seven minutes, and yep. then the Golden Knights were like, "All right, time for us to shine," and they were spectacular. I know Montreal got into penalty trouble, especially in the second, but still, that that Vegas team is unbelievable. And if it was Colorado, it would have been the same. You know, any team that would have come out of the north, including the Leafs. Um, would have been in, in tough against either Tampa or uh, Vegas or maybe even the Islanders who have a one nothing series lead going into game two tonight. The Islanders are playing some good hockey. So whether that's the crowd or, or whatever the case is, you know, it's, it's unfortunate the Leafs are not there. Uh, let's hope that the Habs maybe win a few games and prove us all wrong. But uh, yeah, Vegas looks pretty good. Did it not strike you, though, when you watched that, that we have forgotten what it's like to watch a game with a crowd that you're suddenly concentrating? It was so, it was so unique to see people and excitement and stuff happening that you're like, oh, that yeah, I forgot that's what real sports looks like. It's a, what an amazing difference, eh? I mean, just as a spectator watching on TV, the the hum, the din, the buzz, the, uh, you know, the, the adrenaline that flows off a big hit or a huge save or a massive goal, uh, it makes such a huge difference. And I can only imagine, especially for the Habs last night in game one, not having played in front of any type of, you know, huge crowd like that for you know, well over a year, you know, was it a culture shock? Obviously they played in front of big crowds before, but it's been a while. So it must have had, you know, them kind of feeling around to say, all right, we're back at the big leagues. Um, so let's see what happens in game two and beyond. Well, there's an optical illusion with crowds. I really believe that. I think that if you took a number of, we don't see with Canadian university sports, 
the same crowds, obviously, that you see in the states. But I think if you and so when you if the, if you see a game, if they happen to broadcast a game and you're watching basketball or something, it always looks Canadian University basketball, for example, or football, always looks like a high school event on TV. Not that the level isn't good. But if you don't have people, it doesn't look the same. If you were to put a lot of Canadian University basketball teams in one of the American arenas, put them in Duke or somewhere else with the full house and everybody going crazy, I think that the perception of the level of play would go up an awful lot. It's that crowd that makes it look like it's better yeah. than it you might otherwise think. Yeah, it makes it look like an event that you want to be at. So you're watching, you're listening, you're feeling kind of the momentum you know, shifts and changes and, you know, get drawn into that excitement because the crowd plays a huge part of that whole experience, whether you're there or you're watching on TV or even listening to it on the radio, you know, hearing that sound, kind of feeling that vibe, good or bad, whether it's cheering or booing, uh, you just get enveloped into that whole kind of atmosphere. does make me wonder, though, what the crowd would have been like for the Leafs on the night they lost. But we don't need to know about that because, you know, they got away with one this year. Next year, though, next year, they better do something. We'll see. Uh, Rick Zampern, always appreciate it. Uh, and again, Rick will be back starting August the 5th with the fifth quarter. So if you are a Cat fan, you can begin your drinking now to prepare to call in to Rick's show because <laughs> we know that you need a good head start in order to be fully alcoholized to give the best possible comments. All your, all your best guests are always the one who are slightly lubricated, correct? I always say, please call responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll build a sign. We'll, we'll have that as your, as your trademark. Rick Zamper, I always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. You got it. August the 5th, CFL season starts. And again, four times with the Argos this year, possibly five with the playoffs. That is a lot of time in football. A lot of times playing against the same opponent. When you consider that in the NFL, you would never see an opponent more than twice in a season. I don't think there's a way. Maybe you could see them three times, maybe in a really weird, weird circumstance, but five times, that is just unbelievable. I'm sure some people will be loving it, though. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.